Welcome to Canada's newest barbecue podcast show. I'm Rob Tuzzi, and I am coming at you from the great city of Toronto, Canada. And today, I have the great pleasure and honor to interview a barbecue aficionado for, I don't know, over 30 years, a culinary professor for, I don't know, over 20 years, a celebrity chef since, I don't know, maybe when all the paparazzi started following him around. One thing I do know for sure, since he was born, this guy's got the biggest smile around, not to mention he's married to the best baker in the world. He is a cookbook author. And the title of his book is called Living High Off the Hog. Please welcome to the show, Chef Michael Olsen, everybody. <laughs> Hello. I love that intro. Can I, I'm going to get a recording of that and uh, use it as my ringtone. <laughs> <laughs> well, this is a great honor and privilege. I thank you ever so much for uh, donating some time uh, from your busy schedule on my newly launched uh, barbecue podcast show uh, here in Canada. And of course I have listeners, uh, whoever can listen to their uh, Spotify or iTunes uh, podcast show. Uh, obviously they can listen from around the world. So this is exciting for me. And I thank you ever so much for uh, joining me today. Great. I'm absolutely thrilled to be here. So thank you. Perfect. I love it. Chef. So um, we're going to talk about your cookbook today. But you are married to someone who is no stranger to writing cookbooks, no stranger to the Food Network channel. So please let us in on your little secret as to who your wife is. <laughs> um, my wife's name is Anna, and she has, um, we, we both, I don't want to say escaped the kitchen, but we both got out of uh, actively cooking in kitchens quite a while ago. I went into teaching, and then she pursued a career in uh, media, she, she had an opportunity to try out for uh, a Food Network Canada called Sugar way back when. And <laughs> she's been doing it for, good grief, uh, 20 years now. And she's actually out on location right now. Of course, everything is different with all the, the COVID protocols, but she's actually on set today doing a wardrobe fitting and, and getting ready for another production. And um, she she's kind of a machine, like she can write recipes like no, I'm not just saying that because I'm married to her, but nobody can churn out recipes like Anna. So she's written 11 cookbooks now. And, and wow. she is so like when I when I do my uh, recipe writing, even for school, I, I kind of follow her standards because she's so detail oriented, you know, like a lot of times if you need to write a recipe, you'll jot it down. You won't get the details just right. You won't necessarily double check a measurement or make sure things are absolutely clear, but she is right on top of that. So um, she's a great, insp great inspiration. And, and I know I am for her uh, too, because we work as a team with a lot of our endeavors and we honestly believe that uh, one plus one equals three in a good relationship. And, and we not only look after each other, but we push each other to be, you know, stronger and better in a, in a lot of different ways. Chef, I love that math. That there, ladies and gentlemen, is the definition, <laughs> definition of Canada's culinary, creative, cooking, 
cookbook authoring power couple right there, I tell you. And you know what? You've written your own book now. You only got 10 more to go to catch her. Yeah, I'm working on it. <laughs> All right. So tell us where Chef Olson was born and raised. Give us a little bit of background. Uh, well, like like all uh, chefs, I was born in a really fancy place. Uh, it was a small <laughs> town in Saskatchewan called Foam Lake. And no, that's not the birthplace of the cappuccino. It, it was a little prairie <laughs> town. And uh, my dad had the local hardware store. My mom, was a, she was a homemaker. I'm the youngest of seven kids. You can imagine what a, a crazy house that was. And um, I grew up. Uh, just being a regular Canadian kid, you know, like playing hockey and, and doing all kinds of great things. A lot of my, we lived in town. A lot of my uh, childhood friends were farmer kids. So I was able okay. to spend lots of time, you know, in the outdoors and a very active lifestyle. And it, it was a great place to grow up. I got to say. Wow. I can imagine some of those outdoor rinks, maybe you, you iced over in those fields and played outdoors. It must've been pretty spectacular. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, I did. When I was living there, there were two seasons. There were, uh, it was hockey and road hockey. <laughs> uh, so uh, before bacon started running throughout your veins, uh, you had hockey blood that was cooking within you. Uh, did you, like most of us growing up in Canada, have dreams of ever playing in the National Hockey League? Who didn't? You know, at that time, the uh it, it it actually was something that a lot of kids thought hey i, I want to give it a shot and, and even in like small town across the prairies everybody right. knew somebody that had made it you know like there was a guy uh on the next block uh bernie federico he played with uh st louis blues oh, st. Louis my, blues, absolutely yeah one of my teammates um his brother was dennis polanich who was a, a bruiser for the detroit red wings and it, it, everybody seemed to have a connection to major junior definitely or if not that something into nhl so i i actually want i loved hockey as a kid um, right and i i think i i got to the realization where i knew that i wouldn't go that way so i set my sights on i wanted to get a a, a scholarship stateside because i saw it as a real sort of a, an awesome way to be a teenager so <laughs> I, I spent two years at a boarding school called Notre Dame College, and I, I played for the Notre Dame Hounds, and we, we worked hard. Like, it was a tough place. If, if you ever read the story, Lord of the Flies, well, I went to okay. high school there. Like, we, if we weren't studying or playing hockey, we were trying to beat each other to death because it was, it was just a tough kid school. But I loved the fact mm -hmm. that I went there because it forced – independence on to be like I right. uh, essentially left home when I was 16 and I had to sort things out I had to you know fend for myself I had to sure. uh, turn into a grown-up in a hurry and I, I sure. will never regret that time wow so on the ice were you a scrapper then uh, I I never took penalties because I kept my um, elbows below my ribs but I was kind of a thug <laughs> in terms of uh, knocking people over. So I was a very physical player. Um, nice. Uh, nice. What position did you play? <laughs> defense. And uh, yeah. I, I have to say that I, I, I wasn't 
known for scoring goals, but I had the claim to fame of uh, my final year at Notre Dame. I uh, knocked two guys actually over the boards and I, it wasn't that I was trying to be dirty. It, it just happened that way. Right. Cause that's what you did. <laughs> yeah. they, they might still be there somewhere just hanging there. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, and anybody who went to a boarding school can attest to this, that the food was so awful that I actually dreamt of becoming someone who could prepare food because, you know, having to eat out of a cafeteria for two years, there were right. days where they, they would put out as much ketchup as they would meet on the, on the buffet line. And so I think I actually oh, took an early interest in, in cooking when I was still in my hockey days. <laughs> did, did you always wear the same Jersey number? You know, I did. And lately I'm what? cheesed off at the guy that inspired because of his political views, but I always wore number, number four because Bo Bobby Orr was like a childhood uh, yeah. hero. Anyway, I'm not going to get into that nonsense, but so I, who, I always wore number who was four. Your who was your favorite hockey team growing up then? Um, I, I didn't necessarily have an allegiance because, I mean, like every Saturday night was hockey night in Canada and, and we, we would watch whoever was playing. And I didn't have um, an affinity to one particular team. I, I watched everybody because it was just it was such a big deal. And of course, Bo Bobby Orr was my hero, but but everybody everybody had a handful of heroes at that right. at that time for sure for sure so <laughs> when chef here we go when was the last time you were on the ice skating without a stick but with some pork ribs in your hand <laughs> okay let's go with the stick i'll hold up on the ribs for now it was uh um, <laughs> get this 36 years ago and uh, there is a story wow. Um, I, I played a year, uh, of an industrial league in Japan. I, I played for the Takamatsu Ice Hockey Leme. It was the, the Takamatsu Ice Hockey Federation. And, uh, unlike having city teams, they have company teams over there. So I, I actually played and, and was a technical coach for, uh, the Fuji Dengaku and, uh, wow. We we traveled all the way all around Japan, and it was a fairly light season. And Chef, uh, it, like, oh, sorry, and it was it was a case that when I moved back to Canada, I wow, of course, didn't have any money to spend, and my freight bill to send my equipment back home was something like eight hundred and fifty bucks. And I looked at my skates, and I thought, you know what? Maybe it's time to say goodbye. We've traveled together for a long time. Yeah. So I have I haven't actually been on on the ice since I left those skates in Japan. That is unbelievable. Thirty six <laughs> years ago. I mean, it's exhilarating when you're you're hitting full speed. You cross over the opponent's blue line, and just as exciting. I mean, you went across the world to play hockey, like Japan of all places. That's unbelievable. I can't even imagine the experience of a lifetime that was uh, as a teenager, no doubt. Yeah, it was I mean, incredible. I mean. You're exploring anything and everything that comes your way, probably not even understanding the language or not even knowing what food you've ordered because you had to eat and probably didn't have a clue in the heck how the, how it was going to taste. It's true. And I have to say that I, although I had had part-time jobs as a teenager working in restaurants, like most people do, 
it was when I was in Japan that I developed a real appreciation for the art of cooking. And part of the reason for that is that I had this job that had a limited schedule. And so I ended up having some free time and I taught English on the side. And then I realized that as I was getting to understand the language a little better, that if I really wanted to you know, speak regular colloquial Japanese, I had to get right. into a, a job that forced me to use the language. So I, I there was a place that the hockey team hang, hung out at, little a little bar and grill. is a chicken joint called a yakitoria. It's like a little skewers of chicken. So I convinced the owner to let me work there a day or two a week. And I thought that I would be, you know, wait, bussing tables and helping like that. But he started showing me how to cook some of these dishes. And it was at that point where I realized man, you could actually make a career out of preparing food because it was such an awesome experience. And I had never seen anything wow. like it because, you, you know, we wouldn't have frozen prefab things. Even though it was not a high-end place, he would go to the market yeah. every morning and buy fresh fish and shrimp and clams and so on and, and all the chicken. And wow. essentially, at, at the end of the day, we were out of food and we had to start all over again. And it, it really set the pace for quality cooking for me. Wow. And you didn't even have to body check that guy out of the way. <laughs> no. It uh, was for sure. <laughs> this really transformed, uh, I guess, your life's direction. It's true. Yeah. So when I, when I returned to Canada, I, <clears throat> I, I, <clears throat> I was originally headed down the path of sciences and university, but I was so inspired by that experience that I ended up moving to Toronto and uh, I went to George Brown. And I also went to the School of Hard Knocks and I, I worked, you know, I, I had up to three part-time jobs at one point when I was going to school, but I, I really cut my teeth in some decent Toronto restaurants and learned and absorbed from everybody. Like, I, I think that when you're, when you're getting into your job, no matter what your trade is, you have, you have to you have to be a sponge and you don't just learn from the good ones you learn how not to do it from the jackasses because even the bad employers will teach you something if if you spend an honest day's work and you you do your best and you walk away going well i am never going to i'm never going to treat people like that i am never going to do it like that at least you learn right <laughs> Right. <laughs> Same thing with barbecuing. You if know, you make a mistake, like even burning is learning, Rob. <laughs> yeah, I hear you. I hear you. Uh, I think I, I taught myself a lesson last night. Uh, according to my wife, I kind of uh, burnt the stick, but anyway, it's okay. You know, w w one of the one of the upsides of uh, the current situation we're in is that we we get to prepare meals for our families and unlike a, a customer uh they can't walk out they can't send it back <laughs> yeah right yeah i i hear you but uh, you know i ain't getting no tips though that's the problem <laughs> that's okay you know Jeff, uh people in bookstores and online in the cooking sections they see your book living high off the hog authored by chef michael olson they see the word chef in front of your name, and they obviously think of you as a chef, but they probably don't know that for the past 20 years, you've had different titles. 
you 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 you've no doubt been called you know a professor a teacher uh, a culinary creator a coach uh, you know the the coordinator of all things cooking and just an all-around great teacher for sure so please tell the audience what you do for your day job chef <laughs> i i teach at niagara college and um most of my time is spent in the labs teaching first-year students the, the fundamentals and the basics. And, and a lab is a fully blown kitchen with 24 cooking stations. So when I go in there, oh, it, it's kind it's kind of, I, I, I'm putting the, the emphasis on kind of, it's kind of like running a shift in a busy kitchen, but instead of having the same people that know what they're doing and you're producing food, the, the emphasis is on, it's, it's kind of like every day is everybody's first day because they're bewildered, they're intimidated by the sights and the noises and all these different things. And you have to show them how to act like a pro, how to work safely and how to be efficient. So imagine 24 young people in full uniform and you're introducing concepts to them demonstrating things and then they turn around and try and reproduce what you've done and we have about five hours to to accomplish that uh, in a day so it, it doesn't sound like a lot of time but man it, in that four hour window I, I i would go in an hour early and stay late but in that four hour uh teaching contact time it's kind of like when you're working a service in a busy restaurant on a saturday night so you are running as hard as you can to get things done. And, and it's mm -hmm. exciting. And the, the thing that I love about it is that when I went into teaching, when I, when I left the restaurant business, one of the things that I thought was, okay, good news is you're, you're, you're changing, you're moving on to a next chapter, but am I going to really miss the excitement of that, that busy service on, on a good night? Like, is that just going to, be something that I always look back and regret leaving. The reality is, is that when I have a great class, it's just as exciting as, as, as a great oh, restaurant excellent. service. I, I love the sense of satisfaction. For sure. Uh, uh, for sure. You must get a, a you know, a, a great rush when, it, when it's all done, knowing uh, it was a great accomplishment yeah. by a whole team of uh, 24 strong. That's great. And, and even like, you know, like um, as much fun as it is on a daily basis, but when I run into somebody that I taught, whether it was three or 10 or 18 years ago, it's so awesome to, to catch up with people and see what they've done and where, where they've taken their career and what they've learned. And it's, it's just, it's a really great feeling. For sure. For sure. Uh, I'm sure you've influenced uh, dozens and dozens so. of our uh, culinary guests. Yes, absolutely. I'm sure you, you have. Uh, so, you know, the first year students, I'm just thinking about this. You know, aside from learning, you know, proper cutting techniques and learning, you know, food groupings and nutritional value, um, they're maybe getting an eye opener in behavior and discipline, are they not as well? They are. Um... You know, especially now that we've, you know, taken the lousy situation of living in, in COVID times, we've turned that into a positive where at first we thought, oh, my God, how are we going to operate a lesson with all these protocols? But the protocols are the new lesson because th this is the state of the industry where if you're working in a kitchen, you've got to be hyper vigilant with sanitation and safety, PPE, 
no contact, you know, single use um, packaging and things like that. So we're, we're staying right. on top of that regard. And uh, that's something that I, I've always been a very positive person. I work with a bunch of great people. And even when we're presented a pile of bones, we turn that into delicious soup. Like you, you make the best out of every situation and to show these guys like, on one hand, you know, like some of them are attracted to go to cooking school because they've seen programs on TV. And so there was a while where we, we were afraid that people would show up and, you know, take a six month course and then go, OK, let's let's get ready for my magazine cover and my special on CBC. Yeah, it's just like, probably, yeah, OK, keep your keep right. your shirt on, Junior. But um, yeah, probably there for the only reason. Right. But there, there are so many <clears throat> people that are interested in this and. We, we tend to attract, the, you know, people can argue that times are different now, but we attract the same person that drew me to cooking or drew somebody a hundred years ago into it. And that is that right. you like to work with your hands. You like to see the results of your efforts and uh, right. you like to keep busy. And, and there's, a, there's a great balance of uh, whether you're doing it professionally or doing it at home, there's a great balance of science and art. So the science part is understanding, you know, sanitation and and how to how to apply cooking techniques to make something like meat tender and delicious. But then there's the artistic part, where is if it's uh, you know late August in Ontario and you're not using peaches at some point you're an idiot. <laughs> so right. you, you need to be able yeah. to have this understanding of how things work, but then have this, this right. artistic flair of saying, I know how things work, but how am I going to make them work for me? And this is something right. that I encourage the young cooks to do is don't worry about being creative today. You need to learn how to, you know, get the basics under your belt. You need to learn how to walk, before right. you run and, and down the road, you can develop your own style. Correct. That's the, that's exactly what a chef does. So, uh, chef Olson, I need you to settle this debate. Then let's go in your opinion, <laughs> using the title of chef before someone's name, when they never went to culinary school or even graduated from any sort of cooking program, is that right? Or is that wrong? I don't want to say it's wrong. I think it's weird. Like just because I've been to the dry cleaning store to pick up a shirt doesn't mean I know anything about dry cleaning. And the 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 notion of being a chef, I don't know all the reasons why, but it became a cool thing 25 years 20 years ago. Before that is that like people were embarrassed to say that they were a chef. So the the fact that people masquerade as a chef is a bit bewildering to me because it's it's not the greatest job in the world i i've always loved to work but it's 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 right. it's a tough it's a tough oh, it, haul. It's it's yeah. um and i i just kind of let it slide but i mean it's, it still gets into my skin where i where i see somebody professing uh wisdom and i'm thinking oh my god you you've made 11 a grand total of 11 sandwiches in your lifetime. So you, you do not get to call yourself an expert. You know, like we've all heard these terms where, you know, to, to actually master something, you have to spend 10,000 hours on it. 
And like, I, I feel like I've been cooking for two lifetimes and I still have the humility to know that I do not know nearly enough about all this stuff. And I've got a long way to go to keep on learning uh, just to get to know my corner of the kitchen, never mind the whole, the yeah. whole range of cooking. You know what? I, uh, I share that sentiment exactly. I, I connotate that with the barbecue world. There are people who call themselves uh, pit masters or grill masters. And every once in a while, somebody compliments me with that term. And I'm like, no, 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 not even close, not even close. So um, you're right. You've got to grind it out for thousands of hours for many, many years consistently and obviously do it right. And yeah, then you can use that title. But otherwise, uh, I'm enrolling in your class because uh, <laughs> unless you get that degree, <laughs> I'm no chef. So yeah, it, uh, it, it does bother me when people use that when I, I think, you know, you, you've got a long way to go. <laughs> so yeah, thanks. I, I, I was curious to see uh, what your answer would be. That's great. <laughs> I mean, you, you, you're, you're being submerged in the world of food. You, you, you've noticed a few factors that have drastically changed, no doubt, uh, from today versus, you know, 10 years ago, even five years ago. You know, whether it's the sourcing of food, the, the growth in organics, uh, GMO products. Um, what are any sort of big changes that you've seen over the last uh, several years? Whether they're good or dangerous or bad, There's, tell us. You know, th there are there are trends, there are hypes, and then there are fundamental shifts. And I, I think that I think mm. that uh, if you're interested in food, you're going to watch all of them. So you, you're you're not necessarily going to be the, the great decision maker on what's good or bad for anybody other than yourself. So e even a technique. So okay. for example, you know. 10, 15 years ago, everybody decided that they wanted to cook everything sous vide. Well, sous, sous vide isn't really that new. It, it started off in the late 60s, and it just sort of became really popular 10, 15 years ago. And I never bought into it. So e even if somebody could say, no, th these are the advantages of doing it, you know, like the the, the efficiency of, of getting to the to the right exact temperature, uh, the terminal temperature, and you're not going to lose any uh, moisture from from dry cooking and so on. Like all these things, they could tell me all day the virtues of it, and I would say, that's wonderful. I'm just not a fan of it. It's kind of like music. You could you could tell right. me all day how great country music is, and at the end of the day, if I say this is awesome and they're great musicians, but I'm just not right. into country music. I'd like different. So you can, you can, you can yeah. champion a certain angle, but you're never going to convince everybody. On the other hand, we're not, we're not getting a yeehaw out of you then. Eh? <laughs> on the other hand, I, I do see a lot of things that have improved in general. And, and I think that the, the fundamental one is that people are, genuinely interested in food so whether that means that you're improving your technique or you're choosing to spend your money right. uh closer to, to home and, and keeping local farmers in business or if you're choosing right. a better something like a, a better quality milk to give to your kid well everybody wins at that case right. like the, the thing the thing that hurts food is when people don't care. Like if you go to the grocery store and you're only buying the cheapest stuff, 
just because it's sure. it's pulp. It's like food has so much to offer, whether it's a satisfaction thing or a nutrition thing or even a healing thing. It's also a way that people express their love mm. to each other. That there are so many great things about food besides calories and and fat and proteins. Like it's just if if you don't care that this is. Did you ever see the movie Soylent Green? I think it was a Charlton Heston movie, and and it was this dismal mm. look at the future where the, the food source for people was basically this pulp. It was an energy source called Soylent Green, and nobody knew what it was until the end. But if if we as a you know as a species if we lose our passion and love for food everything else is right. gone to like art and music and all, all the you know architecture all all the cooler things in life they're going to be gone so i yeah. think that if if there's one thing that i've seen that makes me feel good is that people are genuinely into food yeah a uh, very good point chef uh, i i i know i for one uh I care way more nowadays uh, what I'm uh, ingesting than I did, uh, you know, as, as short as 10 yeah. years ago. So, uh, be, yeah, behaviors uh, do change, and uh, you're absolutely right on on your points. You know, you know what else has changed over the years, Chef? I'm listening. <laughs> I'm gonna tell you. I'll tell you. I'll tell you this. It's the deli slicing machine. That's what's changed. <laughs> you know. I, every once in a while, I'm on Instagram and I see a hashtag called hashtag Olson. Hang hardware. on, let me, let me put uh, my Olson say, hardware I'm, hat on here. Okay, how can I help you, sir? <laughs> all right. So, give us the story behind that hashtag and that hat you're wearing. <laughs> okay, so in 2000, my wife and I um, wrote our first cookbook. It was the In on the 20 cookbook. In on the 20 is a restaurant that I opened. In on the 20. In, 20 yeah, years in ago. on the 20 was open in Jordan, Ontario, in a winery, Cape Spring Cellars, in 1993. Mm -hmm. And Anna and I wrote the cookbook in 2000. And we met this super cool guy, Robert McCullough. He lives in Vancouver. He's in the publishing business, and he's been our publisher ever since. And mm -hmm. roll back, I don't know, 10, 10 or so years, and, and Robert was visiting us in um, Niagara, and we were talking about, you know, cooking and cool tools. He's one of these guys that he, if there's a new cooking toy on the market, he's got to have it. <laughs> something tells me, something tells me you're on that team too. So uh, he uh, <laughs> he was talking about. He said, oh, you know, what I really wish I had was like a deli slicer. And I said, you mean like that? And I had this old antique uh you know old aluminum job and he goes yeah that's beautiful and i thought yeah but your your house in vancouver is really modern and beautiful this would look like an eyesore and i thought you know what as a thank you i'm gonna find him one fix it up and and get it done up so i found a, a 1942 oh, wow. hobart model 410 good little you know not too big it's portable it only weighs 60 pounds so it's not like a, a boat anchor and i thought this is something right. that he can ship and, and keep on his counter at home and but i wanted to make it beautiful so i thought what if i went to an auto body shop that would you know specialize in in fixing up vintage cars or something like that and i went i wanted to have funky colors and i wanted the thing to look like a classic auto 
And I went to a couple of body shops and they said, no, we're not, we wouldn't touch that. You know, I think they probably thought it was too much work or they, they thought they may not get a good result out of it. So I almost gave up. And then I drove, I was driving around Niagara and I saw this place and they had a sign out front and it was an industrial shop and it said powder coating. And I thought, I've heard of that. What is that? I've heard of people powder coating barbecues, but I don't understand. So I, educated myself on right. the process and i realized that it's almost like an enamel coating where they they put an electrically charged paint onto a metal surface it sticks and then they bake it on to give it this enamel like you know like a like a le creuset pot Th that's what i yes. realized i could get and so i approached this guy and he thought i had rocks in my he, he just thought what he what is with this guy because <laughs> He, he was doing, you know, tractor parts and uh, uh, handrails right. for condo. Like, like he was doing things, you know, like a thousand pieces at a time. So he agreed to do it. And I laughed and I said, you know, Michael, by the time you're done with me, you're going to know more about deli slices than you ever imagined. And we, we, we've, <laughs> I think today we've done about 35 of them since. And, and at, wow. after I did that first one, it turned out so beautiful. It was a turquoise blue and i started to realize that these old machines followed the same industrial design lines as automobiles so if you're into cars and if i oh, said wow. a 57 chevy you would picture this kind of boxy thing with fins and then if i said a 1940s buick you would think of a more rounded set of lines on it and the same thing goes with right. industrial yep. design so now when i see an old slicer i can tell you the decade that it comes from and probably the, the 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 brand name of it. So this first one had these beautiful round lines and it, I had it done turquoise blue and, and it actually, it looked like a million bucks. And I thought, okay, now that I've gone through this whole process, process of figuring out how to do this, all of my, all of my <laughs> food friends are going to want one of these things. So I better start doing it. So I, I'm like a constant, uh, searching like you're the dealer uh, yeah and I, i'm not like one of those crazy garage sale types but i'm always kind of sifting through auctions or junk shops or looking online for these old machines and i right. i typically wouldn't touch anything after the mid 60s because anything made before then was built to last for hundreds of years anything after that is intended to break after four months <laughs> wow. Anyway, but I, so, I love it. it it's it's not, a good laugh. It's a way that keeps me in touch with uh, chefs, and I, it's it's by no means a business. It's just a weird hobby. Yeah, it's a it's a great hobby. I I can just see how remodeling and refurnishing the first one is uh, motivating enough to continue on when you see the outcome. It's, it's, uh, it's beautiful. Yeah. Uh, it's yeah. a great hobby. And then I'm sure it makes you a nice bella sandwich. <laughs> uh, you slice away. And you... I think. I Damn, I think I need to I order think I one. may do one uh, for lunch today now that you mention it. <laughs> Perfect. All right. So, I mean, you talked about uh, you and your wife. You both co-authored uh, two previous cookbooks, and now you've gone solo. Your cookbook came out in the fall of uh, 2019. Yeah. My barbecue podcast show just came out now. Otherwise, I would have had you on already. So many congratulations on your book. I absolutely love it. Tell us why you wrote it and uh, – you know, what can our listeners expect to find in it? I, um, 
my position in the kitchen was always saucier and that refers to the person that cooks meats and makes sauces so even when anna and i cook at home right we tend to gravitate to our strengths so she she does obviously the the pastry but she does all the the veggie sides and the accompaniments and i focus on on, on right. the protein end of things <clears throat> and i i pitched an idea to the publisher and my original idea was called a look a look through the butcher shop window <clears throat> pardon me and what i was uh hoping to do was give advice to people and i see it all the time where somebody goes up to the meat counter either in my local uh you know mom and pop uh butcher shop or even at the supermarket and they look at this stuff and you could almost hear what they're thinking and they're like okay th that mm -hmm. that looks good but i've never cooked that before so i don't want to take a chance and that looks good but i, I don't even know what that is so I'll, I'll just buy the same thing i bought last week and i thought man if you if you only had a little bit of confidence and a little bit of direction you wouldn't be afraid to try braising this or or slow roasting that or fast grilling this so i wanted to do this thing that covered all meats and when i pitched it to the publisher he loved it but then he said you know what it's almost too broad why don't we focus on one type of meat and i just thought well that, that's a no-brainer because pork is so easy to work with it's the most affordable type of meat on the market and and it, it's got a pretty broad satisfaction rate in canada not everybody eats it you know, like if you're a vegetarian of course you're not going to look at the book if if you're if you're right. uh if your faith direction says don't eat pork of course you're not going to do it but there are a lot of people who do buy pork on a regular basis so I, I did this Absolutely. book and I, I set the chapters up almost like the way that you would look around the butcher shop. So instead of having it, you know, uh, based on seasonal recipes or or appetizers versus main courses, I, I looked around my butcher shop and I said, well, this fridge has all the deli cuts. That area of the fridge has all the ground and dice stuff. Then you have steaks and chops in the middle. And on the far side are the, the big, you know, the party cuts, the roasts, the ribs, the shoulders, all that stuff. So nice. it's it's set up in a way that it does have some barbecue content, but it, it's it's not limited to barbecue. This is a year-round book that offers, you know, an easy dinner on a Tuesday night or an elaborate one that's intended to impress for a special Saturday in your life. Yeah, uh no doubt impressive uh i'm i'm loving it uh, approximately 3 short weeks ago uh the 23rd annual taste canada awards show took place virtually this year and your book was a finalist for an award how uh, exciting was, it was that pretty exciting I, I was nominated for the short the short list in the category uh there were 5 in in the category i i didn't win but of course i was absolutely honored to be recognized on the list and uh, it, it felt pretty awesome it, it we were actually at the awards the year before and just just like any industry event the best part about going to something like that is that you run into people you haven't seen in ages and you have this quick catch-up so yeah. even though it was it was a, sure. a fun venue that was presented online 
I, I did miss more than anything, you know, running into old friends and, and just having that five minute catch up and uh, for sure. For sure. <laughs> everybody's in that same boat. Yeah. Well, yeah. Yes. Um, nevertheless, uh, it was, was a great show and uh, congratulations on that. Uh, Chef, uh, we're, we're so fortunate. We live in this great province of Ontario. Uh, whether you leave, live, uh, you know, deep in the city or far from it, you can uh, be sure to come across any number of fresh farmers markets in your area. I tell people all the time, uh, you know, how important is it, uh, Chef, that people explore their local food vendors? It's uh, it's vitally important. You, you don't you don't have to put the blinders on and and be ultra ultra local. Um, and the reason I say that is that I, I've seen some people that take the direction of you know if it's not grown within a hundred kilometers of me, I'm not going to eat it. Well, okay, that, that's a very wonderful ideal, but I, I don't know about you, but I'm still drinking coffee in the morning and, and I still want to, I want to squeeze lemon on my chicken. So there, there, there are so sure. many great things that are grown close by to us, but we don't grow everything. So I, I always, uh, what, especially when I'm buying meats and produce, I look for, things that are grown here first. It's almost like having a bullseye and, and you're setting uh, rings of priority. So the center of the bullseye is if it's grown close to me, I know that it was grown in a way that has good labor practices and, and safe working conditions. I know that it was grown in a way that they're not putting, you know, horrific chemicals or, you know, like crappy uh, right. sustainable practices right. in there. And not only that, but I, I I like the idea of spending some of my money locally, because the the person that's growing those uh, cobs of corn or tomatoes or raising those pigs, well, they've got to buy skates for their kid, just like you and me do. So I I, I take yeah, every opportunity sure. to think twice about buying food because if I can, I keep it uh, close to home. And I, yeah, very, you know, nice. Li living, very nice. Living where we do in in Niagara, I. I, for, you know, let's say from June up until just recently, I do a lot of my food shopping on the back roads. So I choose to go to a little mom and pop uh, butcher shop out of the way. I, I buy a lot of my produce either direct from the farmer or um, if, if you've ever driven the back roads in Niagara, there are these things called farm gate stands and they're at the end of the laneway of a farm, and it, it can be anything from a card table to an elaborate hut, but it's, it's for the most part, it's a self-serve produce stand. And it's what the farmers have fresh right now. So if you, if you go wow. by an apple farmer, there might be 10 different kinds of apples out there and some obscure pear variety or something like that. And a kilometer or two down the road, there's gonna be somebody with squashes and pumpkins and onions and garlic. It's just, it's a really awesome way to shop. It's a little more work, but that's okay. Cause you know, like right. the, now some, sometimes we need convenience cause we don't have time, but if you can make the time for it, if you can take a little bit more time and get the things that you truly want, the satisfaction level is just so much better. Oh, wow. And uh, you're not gonna find anything fresher, tastier, cleaner that's uh, grown uh, anywhere else. That's uh, a great way to be supporting them. I, I, 
I'm a huge fan and advocate for supporting local butcher shops uh, throughout the year, not just uh, during the so-called summer barbecue season. I'm always reminding people, chef, grilling season never ends. You should be grilling year round. <laughs> so now you, you, you get out there and you support your local butcher shop because uh, as I remind a lot of people, they just don't have meat. Uh, they do have the cold cuts. They have a, a, a frozen section. They have fresh produce uh, depending on the time of year. So they have a lot yeah, to offer. They, Absolutely. they also know what they're doing. So um, I, I don't mean this in any disrespect at all, but if you go to a lot of supermarkets, the, the person that's um, putting those steaks into the counter, they, they didn't cut them there. They, they, they received them in the pack. It's not their fault. They, they might be in that position, but sometimes they're not there because they have a passion for that job. But if you go to a butcher shop, right. you're probably going to find somebody that's really into their work and, you know, listen to what their advice is. Like if you say, hey, listen, I, I, I want to do a pot roast. What cut should I buy? It's in their best interest to tell you what to buy because it, it's not their fault if you screw it up. But they, they actually want you to have a positive yeah. experience so that you'll come back and, and spend some sure. more money with them. The, uh, you know, I, and, I think, and I tell people all the time, hey, ask the questions. If you're not even 100% sure what the hell a pot roast is and how long you got to keep it in the pot Absolutely. and where do you put the damn yeah. pot? They'll, they'll tell you, they'll, they'll teach you how to get it done because they, like you said, they want you to have a successful outcome with yeah. your meal. Absolutely. And you know, like the, the things that I've yeah. learned from these butcher, there, there's a guy I go to the, the, the Sorrenti brothers. They're, they're just 10 minutes away from our house. And there's a man that works for them. Uh, and this guy's a bit of a local legend, Homer Vandermeer. He's been cutting meat for over 60 years like this. And he can trace his family history wow. in the butcher business back to the 1600s in Holland. So the things that I've learned from Homer, I could never distill from reading a book or watching videos. He's, I used to call it the University of Homer when I would go to his own shop and I would wow. ask him a question and wow. he would say, come on, I'll show you. And he would show me. You know, like he would break open a carcass or like sometimes three of them. And he would say, you see this one here? That's because it's a good breed and it had good feed. And he goes, this one, he goes, that's a terrible piece of meat. And sure enough, when you see these things side by side, that's when you truly understand, you know, marbling and, uh, and, and the, the muscle structure and, and, you know, like an animal that's been properly taken care of. I, I've just like I, I've learned so much from that guy and the Sorrenti brothers too. It's incredible. Amazing, amazing. Well, ladies and gentlemen, uh, we are with chef and author Michael Olson talking about his new book, "Living High Off the Hog." And uh, I did read that uh, portion in your book. Um, quite fascinating. Chef, help us out. Give us uh, two, three mistakes that the average backyard griller makes. When they're grilling pork. <laughs> okay. Uh, let, let me start <laughs> off. For, I'm, I'm looking out the window now at my setup, and I want to tell you what I what I have as options. So, I, I have a part of our part oh, of our no. deck. Um, we we eat outside um, half a year, and I cook like you. I, I grill throughout the whole year. So out there, I've got I've got a charcoal. Or I've, I've got a there's a big green egg that I run charcoal on. Uh, I've got a, I've got a Traeger nice. for for uh, pellet smoking, and uh, beautiful wood fire. I've got um, a techno roast, like a spaduch grill, 
and then <laughs> a little uh, gas-fired uni pizza oven. So I've, I've got a good setup out there. So mm. when it comes to cooking pork chops, I have a couple of options. I I can, if I'm looking for a nice thick cut that I want that intense charcoal flavor, I go to the big green egg. And if I want something that's got a lot more smoke, especially if I'm doing the the the, the barbecue cuts like shoulder, capicola, ribs, and so on, I, I would lean towards the the Traeger because pe pellet smoking is like it's like using a toaster. You set your temperature and turn it on and and go away for four or five hours. But um, yes. the first thing about a pork chop is don't overcook it. So I use a meat, a okay. digital meat thermometer. And I grew up with my mom declaring very early on, you have to cook pork well, well, well done. Otherwise it's not safe. There was a point in time where hmm. that was true, but ever since the sixties, that isn't true. And it has to do with how the pigs are fed. So you do not have to cook a pork chop like a piece of chicken. If you cook a pork chop to 160, it's gonna be dry. It, there's just no, there's no, there's right. no getting around it. So when I cook a pork chop, I only cook it to like 145 and then I let it rest before either slicing it or serving it whole. And I also don't cook on high, high, high heat. Everybody wants to cook like they're on the surface of the sun. Like it, everybody turns their grill on <laughs> right to the max. You know, if they're doing charcoal, they, you, you can see like if somebody was cooking in, Thorold, which is about 18 kilometers from here, I could see the smoke from where I am in Welland. So, <laughs> keep you know, keep, take oh, it nice. easy and cook on medium, medium high heat. Yeah, you want to get some color on there, but if you're just cooking right. at these incredible temperatures, you're going to dry it out. So, I, I like to do highly seasoned pork chops. The, the great thing about pork is it, it it's a bit of a chameleon. It takes on whatever flavor you want to go. You want to go sweet. If you want to go spicy, if you want to go coconut right. and green curry, it, it'll take on any of those things beautifully, but uh, season it so highly. Would, would you say, yeah, yeah, go ahead. Would you say that seasoning, does the pork absorb seasoning better than uh, chicken? Um, if, if you get good chicken, it absorbs it. Uh, pork across the board, okay. I think does a great job of, taking on any flavor. I, I find that with chicken, I, I watch carefully and I try to choose a better quality chicken. There's, there's, there's a bigger range in quality as far as I'm concerned with uh, the commodity chicken, but with pork, it's a very, very consistent product. Like, you know, when, when, yeah, when you look at something them. like beef, there's a huge range of quality, um, attributes in beef because there are so many different uh breeds on the market you know like some people are into black angus then you get all these different crossbreeds and so on but in the pork world it's a very small genetic pool you know it's, it's kind of like when you see uh a family and, and you, you see a family and everybody from age three to 93 has the same face <laughs> that's kind of that's kind of the way pork is so like it they use the same marinade <laughs> on that family. What are you gonna do? Um, if if I've if I've cooked if I've handled ten thousand pork loins in my life, 
every one except three of them were the exact same size and shape. Like pork is really consistent in Canada. Um, you know, I, I, and that's, yeah, that's so outside true. of if you're using heritage breeds, they're going to be a lot fattier. A lot of people right. prefer that. But when you look at commodity pork, it's, it's very consistent. Right. So it, it absorbs whatever you want to put on there. For sure. For, for those who experience that consistent result when they're grilling pork, it makes them that much more comfortable uh, going back to it and uh, buying it again. So you're absolutely right. Um, the analogy is there because uh, pork uh, is always consistent. Yeah. And, for, you know, sure. like, for, for barbecue, uh, pork is the, 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 it's the top, top animal because it, it's got so many things about it that go well into the barbecue world. And, and I'm talking barbecue that's got a wide range, everything from high heat grilling, um, to like the super low right. and slow, we, you know, we, we used to call that American style barbecue, but now we've Canadians have adopted that American style. And so when you say barbecue now, a lot of people think of that low, slow, smoky, sweet, salt, fatty Correct. character. So true. And I, 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 I got to tell you so one true. thing, Rob. Something, something to watch yes. out for. If you're, if people are really into barbecuing, I've seen this before. And I don't think it's a medical condition. There's no term for it. But I I have <laughs> seen barbecue fatigue. Do you know what I'm talking about? Bar barbecue, barbecue fatigue. If, if, oh, if you man. talk to some people that have been on the circuit where they've been going to competitions, they've been they've been working barbecue for okay. years. Even a, a buddy of mine, okay. uh, he, he became a certified judge for the Kansas city barbecue association. So he would have to go to these barbecue fests and taste like a hundred different ribs on a weekend. And I swear th these guys, they get to the point where they are so sick of barbecue. They don't even want to look at a rib any yeah. <laughs> and, and part, yeah, part of, part of it sure. is, is that what we like about barbecue is that it's highly seasoned, so it's 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 often salty, it's sweet, it's kind of fatty, it's sour, like it's really appealing. But when you eat too much of it, you're kind of like, okay, step away from step yeah. away from the buffet. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, without a doubt, that's a barbecue extreme fatigue <laughs> for sure. I don't know how many of those weekends I could do. Maybe the first weekend I can uh, chomp down 99 out of those 100 ribs. But uh, going forward, that's uh, that's an uphill game. Yeah, for sure. I hear you, <laughs> Chef. <laughs> so, listen, uh, you, you, you talk about uh, salty and sweet and spicy. Let's uh, let's play, if you don't mind, just a quick one-word association game. I'm going to rifle off some uh, terms in here. And you give me your uh, – whatever comes off the top. Cue the game show music. I'm ready. All right, here we go. Uh, sweet or spicy? Uh, sweet chili glaze that you would get on something like Thai food. My wife hates it. I love it. Oh, baby. I love it. So do you have a favorite spice then? Uh, overall, black pepper. I, I go through more black pepper than oh. uh, some restaurant chains. Oh, wow. Wow. And uh, your your favorite vegetable? Depends on the time of the year. Uh, right now it's squash. Uh, three weeks ago it was eggplant. Yeah. I, I do I do a version yeah, nice. I do a version of uh, eggplant parm on the big green egg. So I 
I slice and uh, grill the eggplant to get some smoky, some char in there. And then I layer it in with cheese. And I put a little bit of andouille on the bottom of the roasting pan. Cheese, there's a great sauce made in uh, the falls called marinelli. And I use that, top it with fresh mozzarella, and then finish it in the big green egg. And it pulls oh. some of the smoke in there. It's oh. dynamite. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for rubbing it in, Chef. I'm sure it's dynamite. That sounds just dynamite. That's great. Listen, uh, uh, listen, ladies and gentlemen, he just gave us a lesson right there. I asked him what his favorite vegetable is, and the answer was seasonal. So, you know, take it from this, Chef. You need to get out there, look at the calendar, figure out what month we're in, and buy according to the season. Because uh, I absolutely love that answer. And uh, there's a lesson in there. So I appreciate that. And uh, what would be your favorite herb? Thyme. Can't live without it. The, 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 yeah, Is the, that the right? Way that, the way that onions are to the vegetable world, thyme okay. is that yep. equivalent in the herb world. You know, um, have, have you ever yep. bought a, a bunch of uh, coriander and then 10 days later thrown away 80% of it? Uh, we all sometimes yeah. that happens. I do love coriander. Uh, yes, the, the like a lot of herbs have a more limited use, but time goes into everything. It goes into marinades. Put it in with onions, potatoes. Mm. Put it into your soup mm. if you're if you're making a sauce. Add some time. Like time works everywhere. I, nice. I used to actually uh rib i i, I was just gonna say i i used to go ahead, I, go I would ahead. pull the leaves off the time before i had uh I, years ago I, I just had a a very simple gas barbecue and if i if i wanted that okay. extra smoke flavor i would pick the leaves off the thyme and rosemary and when i was grilling meats i would throw the stems right onto the the gas burner and it would give a, like a bit of a smoky character to it. So like these things have a lot of uses and, and let's face it, the, but part, oh. one, one of the realities of the barbecue game is that everybody wants the fancy toys. Well, they're, they're great to have. And I'm a big proponent of, of getting the toys you want, but if, if, if you don't have the, the, the cash to make it happen, you can make great barbecue with very little, like, you know, very well that if I gave you a roll of yeah. tin foil and a shoe box mm -hmm. and a chicken leg, you could make your own lunch. <laughs> yeah, so true. So true. Another uh, great tip here from Chef Olson, everybody. I hope you wrote that one down. That's amazing. How do you like your ribs, wet or dry? Wet. I, I'm, I'm, I'm not as yeah. complicated as the three, two, one, aficionados I, I just find that there's there's a point where you're 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 dipping the lily in gold and like i love ribs right but if i if it takes me forever to make them delicious and and some of the techniques that are popular on social media where you you know smoke them for three hours and then you wrap them in foil and add a bucket of butter and maple syrup and then you take that out like i just find it's like oh my god take it easy and the the most yeah, for me the yeah. most confusing thing about ribs if if you cook a pork chop it's going to be on the grill for about 12 to 14 minutes do you eat the meat off of that rib bone absolutely you do and so sometimes i look at it and i go like, mm -hmm. how can i how can i uh take that same bone 
and if it's on the grill for 15 minutes right. and it's delicious, do right. I really have to cook it for six or seven hours to make it edible the other way? Yeah. It's, it's a very, rib, it, ribs are confusing. You know, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. You know what? I, I got home from work the other day. I kept it simple. I had some ribs thought out from the night before, seasoned them up quickly. I threw them on the, uh, I have a Traeger. And uh, I put it at 300 for three hours, and it was done, and it was just I, delicious. I so uh, I hear you. Sometimes the, uh, the, the long, uh, slow cooks, um, well, uh, time's passing. I'm hungry. I, I got hey, listen, if, if, I, if I boiled so, one of my work shoes yeah. for seven and a half hours and put enough barbecue sauce on it, it might be edible, too. <laughs> <laughs> we'll pass on that one, Chef. So... Listen, if, if, if Chef Olson was stuck in the middle of the Sahara Desert, okay, but you weren't alone, you were with a bartender. <laughs> and, and the bartender had three drinks from which to choose from. A yeah. beer, a shot of whiskey, or a glass of wine. Which one does Chef Olson pick? I would definitely go for the beer because we're in the middle of the desert. I do... <laughs> <laughs> I do love a good glass of wine. I'm I'm not into spirits. I'm I'm intrigued by them. Like I love mm -hmm. smelling different spirits, but I am the worst. Like I'll, I'll buy, uh, you know, something like a, a, a rum or something like that because my wife needs to cook with it, and it'll 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 be in the cupboard sure. two years later. And on the other hand, if I if I buy six beers, they're they're half done before Gilligan's Island is over. So um, I, 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 I oh, definitely yeah, see sure. one as, as a, a, a drink that I enjoy. And the other one is kind of like, it's an ingredient. So I, 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 right. I appreciate spirits, but I'm just not into them. Do you prefer your pork chop to be a thin cut or a thick cut? Thick. I'm glad you mentioned it because I have a pork rack in the fridge. Uh, a, six, a six bone rack that I had actually thought about cooking and sending it over to friends, but we're, we're not going to see them. So I'm going to break it down. And so yeah. dinner tonight is going to be loin chops and they will be, they'll be mm. about 10 ounces each. Way, way more. My, my wife thinks I'm nuts mm. when I cook a piece mm. like that, but mm. the good news is we can cook it and then slice the leftovers for a sandwich tomorrow, but thick, pork chops wow more than half a pound right there beautiful love that cut absolutely i agree uh, um i uh enjoy the thicker cut of uh pork chop that's for sure give us a, a few tips on grilling the perfect pork chop uh get yourself organized so the um I, i've often heard people say uh oh i don't want to use charcoal because it takes too long to get the fire burning it's like no it doesn't it takes 15 minutes between lighting and cooking so Instead of getting everything ready and then lighting the fire like you would with a gas grill, I do it the other way around. So I'll fire up the the charcoal, and while it's coming up to temp, I'll come in, I'll prepare the salad, choose the wine, get the music going, marinate the meat, and then the cook time is easy. And start to finish, I'll have dinner on the table in 40 minutes. So and Anna's on the road today. When she gets home tonight, she'll walk into... Uh, a beautiful hot meal, and I'll, I'll be there with her slippers and pipe. <laughs> and, and while the music is playing in the background, you'll be singing her or serenading Absolutely, her. Or what? Man. <laughs> wow. 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 
We're picking up some great <laughs> tips here, folks. <laughs> you know, I got to tell you, your cookbook, I love seeing the full page, colorful photos. They're practically on every page. I, I like how you tell people how long the cook will take. But I, I really love the, the fact that you list beside every recipe how long the prep time is because this is a step I feel most people underestimate. The um, and, and that's why dinner is always late, maybe. <laughs> it's, you know, one of the biggest challenges of cooking is timing. So get, getting everything on the table, cooked to the right degree at the exact same time is like orchestrating 10 different deliveries from different parts around the city and the province to arrive at your house at the exact same time. So I, th this is one of the things I uh, talk to my students about all the time is that make, make a list. I don't, I don't care if you do a spreadsheet on your computer or if you scratch out a, a, a to-do list on, a, on, a, on the back of a piece of paper, make a list and prioritize it in time in terms of what takes the longest. And, and I always use the, the holiday dinner analogy, like if, if you're going to make salad and broccoli and mashed potatoes and roast a turkey, which one of those things are you going to start with? And they always say, well, I'll, I'll put the turkey in the oven. I'll say, exactly. And then I turn around and say to them, then why are you doing things backwards? Because you're essentially, the way you're working is you're starting the salad before you've even put the turkey in the oven. So when, when you've got a, a, right. a menu set, you know, when I say menu, I don't mean fancy, but when you've got the, the plan in place, you simply look at what takes the longest and you get that in play. And when that's on the grill or in the smoker, then you go on to the next step and so on and so forth. Yeah. And if dinner starts at six o'clock, you work your way backwards and you figure out what time you need to put the, uh, that true. bird in yeah. there. If, if, if you get so home, true. if you get yeah. home at work and it's 8 p.m., and you've got a hankering for pulled pork, mm -hmm. dream about it and start right. it tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> That's so true. You know, one, one of the great things I love about your book, you bring all of your years of experience and you simplify the conversation. Like you don't overwhelm the reader. You keep your talking points simple and easy to understand. And I, I, I so much appreciate great. that, Chef. Good. Love it. Uh, listen, everybody, if you haven't already gone out there and scooped one up, order one today, Living High Off the Hog. We're talking to Chef Michael Olson. In, in his book, you're going to learn how to buy pork. You're going to learn the basics of butchery. There's different cuts of pork. He illustrates them all out for you. He talks about uh, charcuterie, barbecue, some kitchen basics like uh, you know proper prep, prep work and um, how important that is to stay organized. He talks about cooking techniques. And of course, uh, Chef, you talk about cooking bacon. Uh, I absolutely love it. So um, I just want you to clear up a rumor for everybody, okay? And is it true that the pork butt really comes from the butt? The pork butt comes from the shoulder. And I will tell ah. you why. When, when, people, when people hear okay. the word butt, they think of the, the, the back end of the business, right? The the, the, sure. the term butt was an old uh, way to say barrel. So like people used to ship things by the barrel, not just not just wine, but, you know, uh, an old grocery store would have a, a barrel full of pickles or, or you would buy hardware like nails by the barrel. And so 
the barrel was the original sort of packaging device. And because pork shoulder was often pickled, like it was put into a brine, it was okay. corned, it, it was it was treated, it would be stored in a barrel and, and it was always the shoulder. So that term got carried over and the shoulder was always referred to as the butt. Wow, it's the forever it's, stuck. Uh, it, it's a confusing term because people still, when they when they hear that word, they think it's the back end, and of course that's the ham. Right, <laughs> right. <laughs> you you have a section in your book titled seasoning. Okay, I'm going to tell you straight up. My wife gives me crap all the time for either forgetting to use salt, or when I do, seems like it's not enough salt. So talk to us about seasoning. Seasoning is the hardest part of cooking. And the um, you would think it's the easiest because if you read a recipe, it, it says salt to taste or do this, do that. And we rarely measure salt. And right. salt is interesting because th there's a point where you can't taste the salt. There's another point where you all you can taste is salt. So you, you have to look at it like the, the sort of the, the tip of a pencil where going up towards it, it's not enough, not enough. It's just enough. And then when you go beyond that, it's too much. And the way that we're hardwired, we, we can't even really perceive salt if it's in it's in solution to a degree of less than 1%. So if, if I had a if I had 100 mm -hmm. pounds of ground pork and I was going to make sausage, if I put less than a pound in there, you wouldn't think there was any salt. As soon as I go, as soon as I go okay. beyond about two and a half percent, it's going to be too salty for you. Too salty for some things like condiments is okay. Like when I make when I make right. hot sauce, I, I make it overly salty because I know that someone at the very most is going to have like a half a teaspoon of it. it. It doesn't matter. But something like soup, if it's too salty, you just can't eat the stuff. So the the in my mind, the the for ideal sure. point is just under 2%. So if, if I'm doing a formulation for a big batch of sauce or stew or chili or sausage, I would ge gear towards 1.75% salt. In other words, for 100 pounds okay. of meat, I would put in 1.75 pounds. Yeah. But of course, th that's not easy to right. measure if you're making one liter of soup. So the idea is that you start off cooking with a little bit of salt, and then you add it until it's just right. Of course, this is not as easy when you're doing the low, slow barbecue thing because you, you tend to do all the seasoning ahead of time and then you you eat it, you know, four, six, right. eight hours later. When I do my own, you right, know, when, right, when I right. do my own rubs, I, I, I do a very simple formula. And the, the foundation is brown sugar, salt, and paprika. And then everything else is like the, the decoration on the window. So after I've got the brown sugar, mm. salt, and paprika, if I want to put in cayenne or cumin or coriander seed or black pepper or right. smoked pepper, you know, whatever that addition is, those are the frilly mm. decorations. Nice. And I always do two parts brown sugar, one part salt, one part paprika. And that's the foundation. And, and if you do that for your low and slow rubs you can alter it what like if nice. you like adding garlic or you, you like the fiery stuff you can add all that in there but that's going to be your basic and, and you would season with that liberally and 
and you know, like when you when you set up a rack of ribs or pork, I, I always brush it with hot dog mustard so that the rub sticks on there. I I make sure that I have full coverage. Right. Like I I don't want it to look spotty. I make sure that I that I season yeah. the entire thing, and that's part of the appeal of of For the sure. barbecue. You want every bite to taste as decorated as uh, as you decorate it. Yeah. Uh, yeah, for sure, chef. That's uh, I, I see that a lot. A lot of people inconsistently uh, season their uh, their meat. It's not even evenly yeah. uh, coated. So you're absolutely right. Um, one of the many recipes I look forward to uh, cooking from your book and the one my wife wants. It's the green curry meatballs with coconut. <laughs> she loves curry. I love coconut, and who doesn't love meatballs? <laughs> I can't wait to get That's into a good that one. one. I have to tell you a quick funny story about the, the you know, if you go to um, some of the supermarkets have these plastic tubs of the curry paste. If you go to uh, an Asian grocery store, like a, a, one of those markets that specializes in Chinese or or like pan Asian okay. cooking, you can always find in the, in the Thai and Vietnamese area, there's this plastic tub. I'm going to say it's four or 500 mLs. It's always a white plastic tub and they have red, green and yellow curry. So I, I've known about this for years and I always thought it was, it was a cheap punk shortcut. And several years ago, my wife and I had the opportunity to visit Bangkok. We, we were, we were doing a special event in a hotel, fancy hotel, where we were doing a, a Canadian themed wow. banquet. It was part of a Asian food network tour that we were on. And we got in there and I had to go to a pre-production meeting and I had about two hours and I said, you go ahead. I want to hang out with the cooks in the kitchen. And, <laughs> and the chef said, okay, you can, you can work over in this area. And there was this young lady, real dynamic, like hard working on top of things person. And I thought I'm going to learn so much from this girl. And the, 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 the chip machine oh, wow. starts ringing like, chick, 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 and somebody calls out room service, two red curry chicken. And I thought, excellent. I'm going to see how the real chefs in Thailand make it a traditional, honest to God, from scratch curry. She reaches into the fridge, gets the chicken and reaches out that same stupid white plastic tub that I can buy in Niagara Falls. It's like, come on. And, that's what I realized. Like, yeah, uh, you can you can make all your own stuff. You can reach for the top. You can do all these things. There are there are some right. things that are actually very good as a basic staple. Like, you can right. go buy a fresh coconut today. If you think that you can make better coconut milk than than that can of stuff that like a good quality can that comes from Thailand, good luck, buddy. And also, I yes. mean that the idea of this meatball dish is. <laughs> This is something that you can pull together in 20 minutes on a Tuesday, like on a school night without, you know, spending 12 hours. That there, there is a time to use these, I want to call them convenience products. And it's not because they're lousy. It's because they're, they're actually as good or right. better than I could make myself. Well, I will make it. I will post it on social media. <laughs> I'll tag you. And ladies and gentlemen, if you want to see, Chef Olson's big smile. You just buy the book, turn to page 198, and he'll put a smile right on your face. I tell you, it's beautiful. Listen, uh, my barbecue, my barbecue break family, 
You can follow Chef Michael Olson. He's on Twitter at Chef M. Olson. That's at Chef Molson. And where he is almost at 8,000 followers. Get on there. If you're not following him already, let's get him to 8,000. He's also on Instagram as at Chef M. Olson. Chef Olson, before you leave us, I want to read out to my listeners the last line from the first page of your cookbook. And it says the following. For Michael, that's what living high off the hog is. The good life of combining good food and great company around your table. Ladies and gentlemen, pick up a copy of his book and bring some great meals and family gatherings around your table today. Chef Michael Olson, I can't thank you enough for this great opportunity today. Thank you so much for joining me on my new barbecue podcast show. I was really happy to be part of it. (laughs) Thank you ever so much. Uh, Get out there, everybody. Buy his book, Living High Off the Hog. Thank you, Chef. Thanks very much, Rob.